I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Jesse Morton, a research fellow at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Jesse is a reformed former extremist who was once a prominent radicalizer in the West. As a research fellow at the Program on Extremism, Jesse now focuses on issues such as the propaganda of terrorist organizations, Islamic and jihadist ideologies, countering radicalization and extremism, and promoting disengagement. He considers this work an opportunity to repair some of the damage caused by his radicalization. Jesse, thank you so much for being on the program today. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. So your background and the transformation that you've gone through give you unique insights, I think, into the motivations and drivers of violent extremism, as well as how people can be pulled away from terrorist organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey that you've been on? Well, I think that uh, when we look at uh, radicalization, we have to realize that it's a process, not an event. Um, Oftentimes, when we look at the pre-radicalization stage, we see things like trauma, um, a crisis in life, the death of another. Um, something significant that happens. And I think that all people uh, are searching for an identity, meaning, and purpose in life. I uh, uh, came from a very dysfunctional and abusive background. And I think that my reaching out to society for assistance and the fact that there was no intervention uh, affected my ability to relate with my society and to feel like I belonged to where I came from. So from a very young age, I was searching for countercultural identities and um, alternative worldviews. So I was open uh, from a very uh, young age. Um, When I first found Islam, uh, I had criminal behavior in my past. And I found Islam when I was briefly incarcerated in a county jail in State College, Pennsylvania. Uh, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X before I ever read the Quran. And because I could relate with his story of a traumatic background, transfer to criminal behavior, and then a transformation through the religion, I quickly identified with it and started to research and read more on it. Eventually, I converted. uh, But uh, of course, behavior change doesn't happen overnight. I ended up incarcerated again in Richmond, Virginia, and met a Moroccan Muslim who had been part of what we called the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. He taught me the basics of the religion, and he also taught me, told me one day to go into the shower of the jail cell and to wash every inch of my body before I sat down to retake my declaration of faith. Um, he told me that basically when you convert to Islam, you were born a new baby. And when I came out of that shower, he gave me my name, Yunus Abdullah Muhammad. And in that process, he also gave me a completely new identity. One day, a man was walking in front of our prayer in the jail, and there's a hadith by the Prophet Muhammad, a statement by the Prophet Muhammad that says, if someone walks in front of your prayer, try to remove them with your hand, and if you can't, then fight them, for they're a devil. Uh, 
Uh, he got up and proceeded to fight somebody twice his size and get beat up. Long story short, uh, a couple hours after that, he called me to the back of the cell, uh, and he explained to me that there was going to be a perpetual war between the Muslims and the non-Muslims, that the black flag had been raised in Khorasan, which the jihadists interpret as Afghanistan, and it would not be stopped until it reached Jerusalem. He taught me about the end times prophecies we see so prevalent in ISIS propaganda, and completely fit an already existent radical politicized view that I had. So he merged for me politics with religion, which is the key component of the ideology espoused by the extremists. From there, I moved to Harlem and totally transformed my life. Islam gave me structure, but I was exposed to radical milieu there, influenced by the nation of Islam um, and their uh, revolutionary concepts. I was living in a house that was run by them, um, but looking for an outlet. Uh, and one day at a Muslim Day Parade in 2004, I ran into an organization that's an offshoot of the primary radical group in Britain called Al-Mahajirun. Al-Mahajirun uh, had an offshoot in New York City. Uh, I saw the black flag. I saw their posters of um, Muslim children being allegedly killed overseas. I found out later that they were actually pictures of uh, Muslim on Muslim violence. Um, but, um, you know, it was it, it inspired me. And immediately I walked up to them and said I wanted to join them. I've always been fairly articulate and intellectually curious. And so I climbed their ranks very quickly and became one of their prominent speakers. 2007, I had already established contact with Abdullah Faisal, another prominent preacher from Britain that had radicalized Jermaine Lindsay, one of the 7-7 bombers. We started an organization called Revolution Muslim, and I continued to progress uh, through that. Um, I think that the real effect that also needs mentioned uh, is that at the time, Al-Qaeda was promoting a transformation in their structure from a hierarchical organization to a leaderless resistance model. And part of that um, was that they asked everybody everywhere that supported them to propagate their message and their worldview. So I took uh, myself as someone who was adhering to a leadership and contributing to a cause. And again, ultimately gave me meaning and purpose, and I continued to get better and better at recruiting and radicalizing others, having understood the radicalization process myself. And in terms of your own personal story, I mean, you've highlighted a number of different factors, including the search for meaning and purpose. Oftentimes here in the United States, you know, we hear about ISIS and other terrorist organizations as an apocalyptic death cult. But you've also talked about some of the positive attributes or aspects. When you think about the way that these organizations try to appeal to young people, is it mostly on the basis of sort of the sacrifice and the end of times? Or are they also offering something that's joyous and revolutionary and aspirational, as some people would argue? Well, I think that um, with regard to ISIS's propaganda, it's a little bit distinct than Al-Qaeda's was. They talk a lot about end-of-times prophecy. And even if you look at right-wing extremists, there's a big reliance on this like Armageddon uh, interpretation oftentimes in religious movements on the Christian right particularly. Um, and so it's a power mo powerful motivating message because now, again, you're tapping into that divine um, system, but also the merger between politics and um, ideology or religious ideology is very powerful because you can frame the ideology in a political way. For example, um, a few days ago, they released Omar Mateen's transcripts and we presented him uh, as essentially someone who was just mentally ill and had issues, you know, homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. However, when we look at the transcript, we see that not only did he pledge allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the uh, leader of the caliphate, the so-called caliphate, um, but he cited uh, that his acts were a revenge for one of the ISIS commanders that very few of us know, 
Abu Wahid. Uh, and that lets us know uh, that um, it is ideology that we need to concentrate on because whatever we have tra trauma and whatever issues exist in pre-radicalization, there's no way that you can take a progression from being a radical individual when you first enter the milieu of the jihadist to actually carrying out a terrorist attack if that ideology doesn't motivate you. The powerful framing that ISIS has, the quality of their propaganda, sends a message that it's not just about an apocalyptic vision, but that you can contribute to a countercultural movement. As one scholar is uh, putting it now, uh, it's uh, not about the Islamization, uh, or it's not about the um, radicalization of Islam, it's about the Islamization of radicalism. Uh, we look at waves of terror. This is the countercultural movement uh, of our era, if you will. So obviously, you've come a long way um, as a recruiter in Harlem. What was it that led to the break with this ideology and sort of led you to where you are now, which is as a powerful voice for countering violent extremism? In 2009, someone posted on my website, revolutionmuslim.com, a direct threat against the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in a cartoon. Um, Eventually, that individual was arrested for trying to go to Somalia to join Al-Shabaab, the terrorist group and affiliated uh, outlet of Al-Qaeda in Somalia, um, and he was going to take his infant son with him. He was uh, ultimately arrested, and I saw that there was going to be a likelihood that I myself would be incarcerated. My uh, wife was from Morocco, and so we moved quickly to Casablanca, and I taught English there, and I taught at university there, economics. Um, and uh, it gave me an opportunity to interact with Arab millennial youth. So de-radicalization, just like radicalization is a process, is also a process. When you hold these utopian views about the Islamic State and support for Islamic groups in the Middle East, and you see that the overwhelming majority of millennial youth not only don't support that vision, but at the same time, um, they're very interesting people. They were wonderful. And an interesting piece of that initial um, transformation was they would also express stereotypes about American people. And I had lost my American identity, but I found that I was sort of combative when it came to those stereotypes, and I started to push back. Ultimately, we had an entire class on Hamiltonian economics and the American system of political economy, which shook me. And Osama bin Laden issued a, a video he hadn't been heard from, from for a long time. So the next stage of my de-radicalization was listening to his video and he uh, talked about global warming. And it was not only irrational, but it seemed to me completely um, ludicrous uh, for the leader of a terrorist movement to talk about global warming. It was apparent effort to rebrand al-Qaeda. It was propaganda piece and it just fell flat with me. So I noticed that I was starting to change. Ultimately, they issued an indictment for my arrest and I was arrested in Morocco. And when you're removed from the radical milieu, you start to reflect a little bit. Um, and I started to reflect when the American government picked me up in Rabat International Airport in Morocco to fly me back to the United States. Um, I was flown home uh, rendition style, actually, by a team of agents from the FBI, Secret Service, a Navy SEAL on the plane. And I was uh, sort of... Uh, the way that they moved, the way that they were organized reminded me of the benefit of having a developed uh, society, having lived in Morocco, right? So I see these people come in, move like clockwork. They take me, they dress me in their rendition gear. I'm scared at first I'm going to go to some CIA torture site because I have all these conspiracy theories in my head. They put me on the plane. They remove the blinders. They remove the earplugs. And they put a Quran in front of me. And they ask me, what do you want to be called? Yunus Abdullah Muhammad or Jesse Morton? And somewhere, some way, I responded, Jesse Morton. And it shocked me. 
We engaged in a discourse on the way home, talked about foreign policy. I tried to justify my actions and my rhetoric, and they agreed with some of what I said. Another step towards not seeing the world in such a black and white way. When I was returned to the United States, I settled in solitary confinement, 23 hours a day in lockup. However, there was a guard that worked third shift, and she was sort of opposed to the idea of solitary confinement. So she would take me to the law library at night and let me stay for the entire shift. And the regular jailhouse law library was housed there as well. And so I would surf for books. And I started to read immediately uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica's Great Books of the Western World. And I started to read John Locke. I started to read Rousseau. I started to read John Stuart Mill. But I really started to get back into the founding fathers of the United States. I read Alexander Hamilton. I read the Federalist Papers. I read Thomas Paine. Um, and even Thomas Paine's work on, you know, secularism. And um, started to re-identify with the culture that I was born into a little bit. Then the real transformation came. I took a plea agreement. And when you take a plea agreement and plead guilty to crimes, um, the government doesn't have to go to trial. So basically, um, you get rewarded a little bit. So my potential sentence was capped at 15 years. But in order to get that deal, you have to undergo what they call a debriefing process. And I started the debriefing process, and the individual that flew me home from Morocco presented to initiate that with a woman agent. In the first session, they said, well, we see that you're still writing because I was publishing from solitary confinement. And I said, I have to write. And the male agent returned. He said, no, you have to incite. And it kind of angered me. But the female agent said, well, I read the article, and I found it well-written and quite fascinating. So it started a process where I started to look at this woman and I thought it was good cop, bad cop at first. However, um, over time it became apparent that really uh, she was a good-hearted person. She cared a lot about her country. She cared a lot about her family. And it was sincere. And we retain a friendship unto today. It's not just about who they are. It's about who we are. And when we violate those principles and we cease to be you know, humanist in our approach to some degree, I mean, there is room for you know, certain you know, there's necessity for certain, you know, actions. However, it did help. And over time, it became apparent as well when we were going through the debriefing process. So I was an ideologue. I was espousing ideas, but I didn't oftentimes have direct connection to the individuals I was influencing. And when I saw who they were, when I saw what they were capable of, um, sort of shook me. I saw my effect, the effects of speech firsthand. Um, they gave me an opportunity. I was sentenced to 11 and a half years originally, but the judge called me to his bench and he said, I hear very good things about your ongoing conversations with the law enforcement community. By this time, I was cooperating from an analytical perspective. Um, I was cooperating um, as an operative, so to say, and from many different aspects uh, of uh, CT. He told me that we're going to give you an opportunity to have your sentence reduced. I want you to do the best you can. I'm going to send you to a regular prison, and we'll see what happens. I want to see you back in front of me someday. And he said, Godspeed. I went to, to prison for an additional about two and a half years and engaged in an array of um, operational contributions, analytical contributions, um, and uh, things of that nature. And they let me out in March of 2015. Um, and so... Um, from that period of time, uh, I uh, have uh, continued to um, undergo a further de-radicalization process. I, during my incarceration, I returned to the ideology and was able to analyze it after reading the Enlightenment philosophers through a more empirical lens that transformed the way I saw some of the sciences of Islam. 
And I eventually made my way back to address the root of the radicalization, which was the trauma. And that's what I'm working on now. And do you think it's possible to ever be fully de-radicalized or is it an ongoing process? I can say that it's – I was a substance abuse counselor before when I was operating as Jesse Morton in the professional realm and Yunus Abdullah Muhammad in the radical realm. I was a substance abuse counselor. And we talk about stages of change. I think it applies to the de-radicalization process. It's a model that starts with pre-contemplation. And then it goes into contemplation where you're actually contemplating change. And then you change. Um, you know, you work very hard to change. But there's always the risk of relapse and or you sustain the change. I think that sometimes people could think that they were de-radicalized, but they've only disengaged from radicalism to a degree. So um, for me, there was a point where I realized that I had further work to do. Um, and I was able to tap into that awareness and continue to progress. I do consider myself fully de-radicalized now. Um, however, um, I think that life is a process um, of learning. And I think that when we think that we've attained a certain level, um, we should continue striving to improve ourselves. And so now you're at George Washington University. You're contributing to a really important program that they have on countering extremism. Can you tell us a bit about that work and what your focus is? I've been hired as a research fellow after about a year of interacting with uh, Lorenzo Vadino and Seamus Hughes. I was looking for an opportunity. There was a lot of talk from the president, from the Department of Homeland Security, from other governmental officials about the value of utilizing former extremists. And I thought that I was appropriate um, to do so. It hadn't been done in the United States. And Lorenzo and Seamus reached out to me and we started a very long conversation. I was also um, flirting with other opportunities. But I chose the program on extremism because I found that they were doing fascinating work. They released a report, ISIS in America. Um, and then a few days later, San Bernardino attacks occurred. I found the report fascinating. I found the work that they were doing fascinating. And I found the individuals, again, just like the female agent, Lorenzo and Seamus were really good people. And it continued to cement that view that the world is not black and white, that it's full of grays, and that the people that I once perceived to be enemies of Islam were, in fact, um, not enemies of moderate Islam at all, uh, focused on extremism, and knew uh, quite a bit at that stage about the, uh, the issues. So I chose the program on extremism, and after a long process, I was ultimately hired. Now I'm a research fellow. Um, I've been doing a lot of media lately to get my story out there because I think it's important to insert my story into the public. But I also am now going to transition into talking about the policy, talking about CVE, talking about de-radicalization, talking about the need to focus on what works um, and uh, other uh, areas. But I'm, I've recently completed the uh, first paper, um, and so I'll also be writing, and I hope to contribute and make amends for some of the damage uh, that I caused when I was um, propagating the violent extremist message. So as you mentioned, you did do a lot of press when you first came out, so to speak, as a new addition to GW. What has the reaction been to that? I'm imagining that there's been some positive and negative reaction um, that sort of gets to how polarizing this topic is in the U.S., but I'm just curious about, you know, broadly speaking, how people responded um, to your being a part of this effort. We were a little concerned. We didn't know how it was going to go across. I think it has been better than we actually expected. There's been some pushback from particular communities like right-wing or anti-Islamist uh, crowds, skeptical 
Um, and I think that's to be expected. I mean, if I look at who I once was, when I watch videos, when I have to be faced with media clips, for example, that show where I came from, it repulses me. And I can understand why people would be skeptical of my transformation. Um, but overwhelmingly, we've, have a, we've had a positive response. We have work to do. I'm going to have to prove myself. But um, I think that Program on Extremism speaks for itself. They, as a organization or as a think tank that have only been up and running for a little over a year now, have really um, helped to transform the discussion. They know where they're going. They know exactly how this thing works. And I think that they um, should um, be able to continue uh, to um, have an enhanced role. And I think that having the courage to bring on a former extremist should be recognized, right? I mean, they have a vision. And I think that they understand. So I'm honored to be given the opportunity. I just hope that over time, um, things um, um, improve with regard to the public's perception. I will never be perfect. Right. So let's talk about the landscape for CVE in the United States. We are still at a very nascent stage in terms of prevention, intervention, rehabilitation, and reintegration programs behind where a lot of European countries are, for example. So what do you see when you look at where we are in the U.S. in terms of the gaps and where we need to be in order to do a better job preventing people in the United States from becoming radicalized? Well, I th let me start by saying that when we started Revolution Muslim, there was a common perception in the public that the American Muslim community particularly was immune from radicalization and from progression to violent extremism because of the distinct demographic from Europe. We um, totally saw that with public opposition to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, with a um, our interaction inside of the Muslim American community, that there was quite a bit of radicalism and that it was time to insert Al-Qaeda's narrative um, into the uh, public arena. And that was manifested. If you look at the amount of uh, effort, uh, attempts to commit terrorist attacks or terrorist attacks since then, it's, it's, it's on the rise. We have come to the realization that uh, countering violent extremism or CVE needs to be a component of a holistic counterterrorism package. And so, but we have to get that right. Um, if we're going to address the symptoms of the disease, we're never going to resolve the key issues. And CVE presents us with an opportunity to get to the root. Um, however, sometimes interventions in the CVE realm could be counterproductive. Um, and so I think we're on our way. In my opinion, the two areas for the best um, possible outcomes would be intervention or early intervention um, and alternative intervention and then de-radicalization. I think we'd learn more about radicalization processes and counter-messaging if we talk to people about de-radicalization. Um, my process has key principles that could be extracted. Other people would tell similar stories and you could extract similar principles. Um, and they could be turned into, you know, um, programmatic development. We don't have much of a plan for the 50 individuals that are coming home with terror-related convictions in the next five years. We've done nothing. And this points to the, the, to the theme that we're always reacting uh, to the terrorists. They're fluid. Um, we oftentimes, in an empirical society that's based on science, spend two years studying phenomena and one year 
transitioning to implementation. And by the time we implement solutions, the situation on the ground has already shifted because they're so fluid. I think we have to work on getting more proactive, and that involves some government involvement, but also getting you know, private sector, non-governmental sector, foundational sector involved. We're, we're going in that direction. And I think there's a little bit too much concentration on the realm of prevention right now. Um, but I think that we can get formal mechanisms developed to the point where when we have intelligence-led policing, we identify individuals that shouldn't necessarily be in the large pool of monitoring. We do 10,000 assessments each year. Um, in our law enforcement community. Most of those individuals don't go on a, a watch list, so to say, um, but many of them fit the criteria for an alternative intervention of sending someone in. You learn a great deal from doing stuff like that as well. Um, and so, I mean, I think uh, we need to get creative and we're stepping in that direction. So a lot of our listeners are probably not familiar with the terminology of intervention and alternative intervention. Can you talk about what that entails a little bit and what is the role for community-based actors? Well, early intervention would essentially be where you recognize that somebody is trending towards a path but isn't um, fully radicalized. And there would be a particular approach to that. Um, I think it's not just about utilizing local imams. I think that former extremists can play a role. I think social workers can play a role. I think the same way that we address public health concerns should be the approach that we take. Early intervention would be a particular type of intervention. Alternative interventions would be, as I said, a person that is not committed all the way but does have a radical uh, adherence and has already entered the uh, jihadist milieu. So some people talk about that as off-ramps. Yeah. Finding somebody who has already bought into the ideology or bought into the narratives and is, you know, pretty far down the path of radicalization but hasn't committed a criminal offense or hasn't um, committed a violent act and trying to figure out a way of diverging them, so to speak, from that path. Yeah. I mean, uh, tapping into it, I think that you start in early intervention with more of addressing the underlying issues, the trauma in the background. But I think that with regard to alternative intervention, if a person is already ideologically committed, you have to have an expertise in addressing the ideology and then work back towards the trauma. We don't have a firm understanding of that. I think that some of the efforts that are underway are thinking that local imams can do the work. Um, there's two uh, problems, in my opinion, with that approach. Number one, local uh, imams have an understanding of the religion, but they don't necessarily have an understanding of the religion of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. I think that um, ISIS is more movement. Uh, I think that a person joins ISIS. They don't join Islam. Um, and that there's a distinction there. So we need to develop training mechanisms for local imams, not only to spot people that might be at risk and communities in general that might be at risk, but also so that they have an expertise in refuting the ideology. And I think that once we understand that, then we can reverse uh, processes. And that's a creative mechanism that can also have, if you think about holistic things, and the way that multidimensional approach to counterterrorism might work, you have to look at the, um, the side effects, that st the derivative consequences, if you will, of interventions like that. There's a lot of accusations that the cases that um, are um, ultimately, you know, where there's arrest involved, that they are cases of entrapment. If you have an alternative mechanism in there, um, that kind of uh, combats that narrative. And it's not true. I've seen it firsthand. The checks and balances that government has to go through in order to even open up an investigation are severe. And, um, you know, so we go on from that. Um, 
Yeah. So those are, I think, the uh, arenas where we can transform the approach and develop more holistic strategies. CVE is a good, a good mechanism for that. And you mentioned the fact that we do have this problem bearing down on us of returning fighters. Do you have any ideas about what we need to do in order to prepare ourselves um, to deal with that influx? Well, I, I don't know if foreign fighters is so much of the concern as it is like a, a, a sort of a synthesis between command cotter terrorism and leaderless resistance models. More or less encrypted platforms make it possible for operatives overseas to communicate with people that have been radicalized and are seeking uh, more enhanced outlets. However, foreign fighters is also a concern, particularly in Europe, because people have to cross the Atlantic in order to get here. And it is uh, problematic. And there's a, lo a lesser number by far of Americans that have traveled overseas. It's still an issue. However, when you look at CVE again, um, you do have the ability if you implement the CVE programs, not just to have a monitoring mechanism in place, but you do have the ability to address um, some of the effects of that involvement. We are going to have returning fighters that have escaped and that saw firsthand. So giving them an opportunity to perform a role like myself may be valuable um, if, they're, if they qualify, you know. And I hope we have an um, additional number of former extremists. I hope one of the consequences of inserting my efforts into the American ambit is that other people come out and participate in this realm. Um, but again, um, it's holistic strategies. We can't just refute an ideology. We have to have mechanisms in place, particularly in prisons, because a lot of those individuals would be incarcerated to initiate a uh, de-radicalization process. And that's why in the academic literature, we uh, differentiate between disengagement and de-radicalization. We should promote disengagement primarily, and that would be you know, satisfactory to protect the public. Then we should have mechanisms upon release to sustain uh, de-radicalization efforts. Uh, they're going to be on supervised release through federal probation office. So we do have mechanisms to mandate people to these um, types of programs. Uh, the individuals that we that slip through that we don't know about, whether they be refugees or actually Americans that we didn't know were overseas in return, that's a whole other issue. And that's going to take, you know, quality intelligence uh, gathering and uh, law enforcement mechanisms. There's only one way to deal with that. And this is my final question. And it's something that we've talked about before, which is how challenging the environment within the United States is for doing CVE work. When it comes to issues around terrorism and now immigration and ideology, there's a very polarized political debate in the United States. What are some of the challenges that you see in terms of getting a more robust focus on CVE? Um, and also, how does you know, how do things like the political campaign that are playing out affect the ability to get some of these programs up and running and to make them effective? Well, first and foremost, we have to realize that polarization is part of the war of attrition that's being waged against us by violent Islamist extremists. Um, because what they promote, and we talk a lot about a treatise that was written uh, a while ago that ISIS has adopted as a strategy called the management of savagery. And they talk about filling voids in the Muslim world so that they can create polarization of those societies, get a large portion of the people to support them, and then deal with those that, that don't. They also talk um, quite frequently about the effect of terror acts and the way that it promotes further polarization. Um, inside internal to societies. Democracies can't flourish when they're polarized. We see the same thing in CVE. People come up with a program, they want to implement it. Again, this taps into the difficulties of implementing appropriate strategies before the situation changes on the ground. There's a lot of resistance from both sides. 
Um, it's perceived as profiling. It's perceived as um, focusing too much on the uh, the uh, Muslim community. A lot of people have issues with terminology, and we get stuck in these debates. Um, you don't learn by coming up with the perfect solution in the ivory towers of the academic community. You learn by doing. And I think exper experimentation and um, engagement is the best way for us to resolve the issues. We have to get beyond the uh, resistance uh, and we have to try some, some, some things and we'll learn uh, from doing that. Unfortunately, there is big pushback on both sides and um, it prevents anything from being implemented and oftentimes it becomes political. So with regard to CVE itself, um, we look at, we talked about CVE a lot and then like something happens, the Boston Marathon bombings happen and then we want to talk about CVE a lot and then we forget about CVE. Then ISIS establishes its caliphate and we forget about CVE. We have to be steady. We have to be consistent. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to address the root of the problem, not the symptoms of a disease. And the way you address the root of a problem from a public health perspective is you identify those that are susceptible. You sort of come up with strategies to um, prevent their susceptibility to a virus. But this is an ideological virus. So at its core, if we're going to address the root of the problem, we have to address the ideology. People think that people overemphasize ideology. And, but whether you're dealing with any type of extremism, I think you should differentiate between left-wing extremism, Islamist extremism, and right-wing extremism and not be afraid to say it because the ideological components are different. However, they're similar in many ways. Um, but um, if we're going to address the core of the problem, we have to be able to have the broad... Uh, portion of our communities reject it. They already do, but we do see it starting to resonate more and more. And would you say that the worse the rhetoric gets in terms of anti-Muslim sentiment, that that plays into extremist strategy? So it's sort of a vicious cycle? Yeah. I mean, there's a symbiotic relationship between the media and terrorism. But more importantly, what we don't talk about is the symbiotic relationship between right-wing anti-Islamist reactions to uh, groups like ISIS and the terrorist objectives and strategies. I mean, one of the things that they want is an overreaction so that they can present the United States as if it its people are waging a war on Islam. So a radical is, uh, Christian preacher will come and he'll say, I'm going to put the Quran on trial, right? And then that appears in propaganda. Um, Donald Trump appears in propaganda because of some things that he says, um, taken out of context as well. You know, not to, you know, not to pick on one candidate or another. That feeds into the propaganda war and where people are misinformed. Like, for example, the um, protests in Egypt that attracted so many people uh, with regard to this YouTube video that only appealed to a very fringe segment of our society. The way it's presented to the Middle Eastern uh, millennial population particularly is that this is part of a war that the West is waging on you and it attracts recruits. Um, recently, we uh, conducted a survey and we published uh, the fact that support for ISIS had gone from 20% in the Middle East down to 9% and we celebrated it. However, 9% of the Middle Eastern populations represents hundreds of millions of people. Um, that's something that we need to look at um, and from there. So still a really big challenge, um, needing to focus on the root causes and to have a long-term, steady, consistent approach. And holistic, multidimensional, multidisciplinary. Yeah. 
Jesse, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's been a fascinating and very enlightening discussion. So I really want to thank you for being here with us today and for your courage and candor um, and sharing your experience. Pleasure's all mine.